This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Modelo. What does a true fan look like? It's cheering the loudest. It's never missing a game, no matter what. And for that, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Because you are a fighter, and Modelo is your reward. Modelo, the mark of a fighter. Shop delivery or pickup options near you at ordermodello.com. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. What's up, everybody? I'm JJ John J. Stramski. And I'm Jason Goff. And if you haven't heard, The Ringer has gone local. I'm bringing the fire. I'm bringing the rain from the Big Apple with my show, New York, New York. And I'm repping Chi-Town with my new show, The Full Go on All Things Chicago. We've got episodes three nights a week with all the reaction to the local teams and guests. Plus bonus episodes around all the big games and storylines. So whether you're uptown, downtown, in the burbs, or a transplant. Make sure you follow New York, New York, and The Full Go on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. It is the Ring Run NFL Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I am Kevin Clark, joined today by two great writers to discuss a big topic, how the AFC East became the most intriguing divisional race in football. We talked to Andrew Callahan, who covers the Patriots for the Boston Herald, and Joe Biscaglia, who covers the Bills for the Athletic. We get into a lot of Big picture topics, what every team should be able to learn from the rise of Mac Jones, what Bill Belichick has been able to do this year, Josh McDaniels, whether he should get a head coaching job, and basically just take a look at what the Patriots mean to the AFC in 2021 on a timetable that is faster than I think everybody thought we get into that. Then we talk about the Bills, um, Josh Allen, his regression, uh, why they're so inconsistent. You know, I think every team in the NFL at this point is inconsistent from week to week. We get into why that is a really cool topic. And just basically we get into how these two teams stack up ahead of their game on Monday night. Uh, So let's get to it. Here's Andrew. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm personal price plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash RingerNFL. Just go to Indeed.com slash RingerNFL right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right. One of my favorites, Andrew Callahan. He covers the New England Patriots, the Boston Herald. Andrew, what's going on, buddy? How are we doing, man? Great to be here. I'm fired up. Um, we're trying to figure out what's going on in the AFC East this year, and especially as it relates to the quarterbacks, because I think there's a lot every team can learn from the Mac Jones experience. Not everybody is going to be Belichick. In fact, Andrew, as you know, the last 20 years is coaches trying to be Belichick and failing. But there are some lessons here that we can sort of glean from what – the Patriots have done over the past, not just, you know, eight months, but, but 
18 months and since Tom Brady departed. Um, they, you know, it's some trial and error, um, so, uh, an adventurous free agency period that looks better and better every single week. Um, but there's a lot here. And I want to start here with the big picture. Last year, Cam Newton looked great for two weeks. I was as excited as anybody. I think everybody had kind of, he was such a, uh, it was such a great deal. I mean, honestly, those two weeks, it almost paid for itself when you think about the, the, the value of actual money. I mean, it was a league minimum deal. Um, but then it became a disaster pretty quickly. In that season, what did the Patriots learn about themselves? What did Belichick learn about himself? Josh McDaniels? I mean, I think the only body of evidence before that was the Matt Castle year, which you know, I remember talking to a couple of people, Rodney Harrison, that said that was Bill Belichick's best coaching year. And so I think the, the wheels were turning where guys were saying, uh-oh, Belichick without Brady, he's going to be in his bag. And it didn't really work out like that. What did they learn in 2020? I think when you look back at last year for them, as miserable as that was, right, you get blown out three times, you go seven to nine, you're playing in silent stadiums amid, oh, a deadly pandemic. Um, First of all, you can still beat the Jets. Things are not as bad (laughs) as they could be in the AFC East. So, you know, secondly, though, when you kind of take the lessons of last year and apply them to 2021, I think they found out that their problem solving has limitations. And I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. I think you have in the past, the way they identify and they approach football is through problem solving. You know, the ethos of that organization is we're going to sacrifice everything at the altar of winning our time, our energy, our money. Everything goes there. They, they just straight up tell prospects during the draft, we outwork the rest of the league. But what they found out is as many edges as they think they can kind of mine with their film study and their work Monday through Saturday, it doesn't matter if you don't have the horses on Sunday. So that roster was unfit to compete. Too many opt-outs. Cam got benched three times. He admitted into December he was still learning the playbook. And they surrounded him with the worst skill position talent in the league. So all your systems and processes can be great, but what does your roster look like? And when it looked like that, that it was, you know, that's why you're seven and nine. Wow. Um, that's a great answer. Do you think, you know, I, I think a couple of Bill Belichick's ex-players said that he felt like last year was a joke. And I don't know if that was reported or that was just a vibe they got. Um, but the the edge that Bill Belichick will always have is he's he knows week to week how to exploit a defense uh, or excuse me an offense or a defense. Um, and last year they didn't have that because there was no practice time. Um, there were guys who were practicing on Wednesday and couldn't play on Sunday. Do you think that he he viewed last year as kind of a wash? I think he just got sick of it at the end, and I mean that in that you know again when they identify through problem solving, they believe like the, just the arrogance. Well, let's call it arrogance. They've earned six Super Bowls, all this different stuff. When he can't prove. I can outwork and outsmart you because I have to go sign Carl Davis off the Jaguars practice squad, who's been good for them, but I'm signing guys off the street and practice squad players. Like there are too many things with the COVID opt-outs and the infections that he couldn't control and felt that I think were kind of confounding variables and who's good, who's not. We think we're good, but we can't show it to you because of all the stuff going on. And that, that's what I think you got tired of. Okay. So the Mac Jones, uh, journey started in April, obviously when he was taken with the 15th pick. But I think before that, the idea that the Patriots would draft a quarterback, I think a lot of it was, okay, people were saying, oh, there could be four quarterbacks in the top six, and the Patriots would be shut out. Um, were they always trying to get a quarterback? Was this just how the, the chips fell and they said, okay, this is a value pick? Did they always want Mac Jones? Like, Tell me the story of how this even happened, Andrew. Yeah, so from people that I've talked to, and, and I did some more over the summer and, and checked in with someone last week about that, and I think the plan was always, we are going to draft the quarterback. And they felt good about Mac dropping close to where they were. And, and Jeff Howe, the athletic, did a really good job of retracing all of the picks that led up to them at 14, which basically boiled down to, okay, Sam Fran, despite all of the bogus reporting, 
always was going to take Trey Lance at three, which always made sense to me, right? Because that trade that they made to move up was to raise their ceiling. Lance is a high ceiling player. Mac Jones was always viewed as fifth best prospect. And more than that, a high floor guy. So then you go Carolina at eight. They're committed to Sam Darnold. The Broncos want to ride with Teddy Bridgewater at nine. And then the Saints can't trade up to Mac Jones at 14 with Minnesota. So he makes that fall. But I think if he had been gone, they would have been okay with another quarterback figuring we're going to pair a rookie with Cam and let them battle it out over the summer. I don't know who that would have been. My guess would be Davis Mills because he later goes to Houston, right? Um, but they liked him a lot from the start and just, I think, had some intel where they felt confident sitting and obviously leading him to 15. Uh, what impressed the Patriots about Mac Jones? I've heard the stories about his recall. Obviously, it comes from the Saban uh, tree, and Bill Belichick has shown a propensity to draft guys who played for his friends, um, yeah. whether that's Greg Schiano, whether that's um, Urban Meyer back at Florida, whether that's Nick Saban now. Uh, but when when he gets in the building, the Patriots thought, what of him? Well, I don't think it's an accident he's a Brady clone, right? Like in the reporting I did in around Mac after they draft him and talking to people from his high school, from college, people he played with, his old coaches at Bama, they all came back to the idea that he modeled himself after Brady. Like he's showing a picture of or Brady's combine photo to coaches interested in recruiting him. And they say, look, you're small. We don't know if we can you know, pull you in, sign you and offer a scholarship. And he goes, this is the greatest quarterback of all time. I've got six years to catch up to where he was at the combine. So I think they liked his smarts, his accuracy. And the, the dude, you know, sounds and looks like he was made in a lab with Nick and Bill collaborating over him. Yes. In terms of how he approaches even us in the media, his short, you know, area accuracy, his processing. So I think it was just everything to do with the interview when he sits down and has a complete everything that they would want. And Brady did. It's just him, you know, 20 years younger. But obviously the ceiling is going to be different. Yeah, certainly. And again, this is something I've said a couple of times. Everyone says, oh, he's a he's a young Tom Brady. And we misunderstand what that means. He actually right. looks like a young Tom Brady. But that doesn't mean he's going to be at 44 just destroying everybody and, you know, playing on a second team and winning you know, more Super Bowls than he has, you know, fingers. So it, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it just means he does look like a young uh, a young Tom Brady, because that's how young Tom Brady operated. Um, all right. So let's get into the lessons thing here, because the free agency period to me, I panned it. I thought, I thought, okay, they're going to get better from this, but they're not going to be great from this. Like I, they're going to improve because not only have they had the opt outs uh, coming back, but then they had, okay, adding Johnny Smith or Hunter Henry or Matthew Judon is a, is a net win, but you don't turn over all of your cap space into those sort of players. I was wrong. I've retraced why I was wrong. Um, and, and, Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick were 100% right. Um, but what what was their plan? Because I know I heard the Robert Kraft quote about how, okay, uh, nobody has this kind of money, so there's an inefficiency in the market. We can go out and spend. But I still didn't believe that roster was enough to get them to, with the Kansas Cities and Baltimores and even the Buffaloes of the world. So in even in building around Mac, even though the, when they started, they didn't know uh, it would be Mac, uh, what was that plan? So it was funny because when I was preparing for free agency, my thing was, okay, there should be lessons from how they've been building the roster, even with Tom Brady, to how they're going to attack it next. Because Tom Brady, as good as he was, was always a cost-controlled quarterback. They got him at a discount. That gave them their big edge. And whether it was going to be Cam on the deal that they had re-signed him to or a rookie, they're going to have a ton of money around him and probably build similarly. So when you go back to 2013, which I deemed as kind of this unofficial start of the modern era, the passing boom was leveling off. You've got 11 personnel everywhere. And front offices at that point had a year and a half to kind of adjust their team-building practices around the new CBA. The Patriots had invested big money in tight ends. 
they had targeted receivers who were in the middle tiers, and then they kind of go bargain hunting for run-stuffing defensive linemen. So that's exactly what they did. John U. Smith and Hunter Henry come on down. Nelson Aguilar, Kendrick Bourne, welcome. Hey, Devon Gauchow, we'll give you a couple extra bucks because Drew Rosenhaus is your agent, but thanks for coming up for Miami. So <laughs> the, the, the big surprise was, you know, to me was Judon, and obviously that's the big home run in this. So they followed their same formula, and when you look at their talent, you go, okay, like you said, it's not enough to compete with the Bills and the Chiefs. Their talent, though, just the raw accumulation of talent, even when they were winning Super Bowls, probably not top five, right? Like maybe the 2017 year when they lose to the Eagles, but they've always been a greater than the sum of their parts kind of operation, and that's what this is. They follow the same formula, and Judon obviously has been the best, best signing of all with 11 and a half sacks, but they had never signed a guy on the edge like that before, and I think making that exception has obviously helped make their defense now exceptional. Okay, so you, I, I wonder about the 2013 thing because that was fascinating because I thought about this before. I actually peg it more to 2012 because that's when you mm -hmm. have RG3 coming into the league. That's when you have um, Colin Kaepernick uh, taking over full-time um, late in 2011, obviously. Uh, yeah. Cam Newton came, coming in in 2011 as well. And what that was the start of was, I think, a grand sort of flattening of schemes where every single – every single uh, level of football could borrow from any other level of football, which was not true before that. Yeah, the right? scheme um, wars, right? Yeah. The scheme war, exactly, exactly. I wrote the whole piece, all that stuff. But Lincoln Riley said that that he saw a Big 12 game in the NFL, and that, that would have been completely ludicrous to say 20 years earlier. But I think that the 2013 thing, it's funny that you mentioned that. I think we didn't notice it at the time as much because of Seattle's dominance. Seattle was the one unicorn where, the, okay, they were shutting everybody down. They were playing this brand of physical football using tall cornerbacks, um, dominated the middle rounds of the draft. They, they won the Super Bowl by 35 points. I think that we didn't, as as a media, even though I'd written about it a couple of times, I don't think we realized what was happening because Seattle was kind of a, a, a distraction, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think I look at 2013 more from a roster building standpoint, right, yes. where the schemes are coming in quickly, but the front offices are going, okay, we have all these cost-controlled rookies now, and that's where the rookie quarterback contract become the most valuable commodity in the league. Russell Wilson was making less than the long snapper there. Okay. Yeah, and like exactly. beyond that, 2013 is important because 2011 and 2012 are when the smartest teams started to do this. By 2013, even the dumbest teams were like, oh, yeah, we can do that. Anyway, keep going. Right. Right. So, yeah. So, so you look at what they're doing, and even you go into the draft, right? Like, I didn't know how to answer the quarterback question when I'm writing this big piece about how the Patriots are going to rebuild in late February. And a lot of it comes true in March and April. But you go to the draft, you know, they get Mac Jones, okay. You know, in the second round, they get a defensive lineman. That was a position they had vested more draft capital into than any other position aside from safety. So then they go in the middle round. You got Reminder Stevenson. That dude can catch passes. Same with Shane Vereen. Same with James White. Even Damian Harris is a third-round pick. You get a linebacker late in the safety. So that's where they continue to build and believe in themselves. I think it's just a matter of their evaluation of the individual players is from people I've talked to is a little bit different. And I think that changes spurred by 2020 is what's now giving them an edge and kind of accelerated this rebuild because they're picking the right guys, but following the, the right framework that they've been using still for 20 years. Scheme wise, let's get into what the Patriots are doing to support Mac. Um, you can take that anywhere you want, but I, you know, the offensive line, I think had him uh, in a clean pocket over 75% of the time on Sunday. Uh, we know what that looks like. We know Josh is just at least going to figure something out. But what is different about this team? They're they're a true run first team, all that stuff. Um, but but what is something we should be talking about uh, more as far as this this scheme changes go? I think the best way to look at this is if you know, and I don't have any kids, but they have baby proofed the offense for him, <laughs> like you would baby proof a house because. 
you know, Josh McDaniels is on a heater this season where more than half their games they're scoring on their opening drive. So you're automatically playing from a lead. You're not asking Mac to mount these large comebacks. Secondly, and Pat Thorman established the run had this. Since week four, when they lose to the Bucs, the Pats have had the highest run rate in the league in situation neutral play. So where they're not trying to play catch up, they're not running the clock out from ahead. So they're leaning on that run game. And part of that is their offensive line has just gotten healthy. So they've tweaked some things in and around there. Isaiah Wynn had COVID. He's back. Trent Brown's calf was barking for two months. That stopped. He's dominating now right tackle. So you've got a good line. You're leaning on your run game. And even deeping more into their kind of two-back personnel, which I wrote about this last week, they're zagging offensively where they only trail the Ravens and the Niners in terms of how much they use a fullback. And that's jumped over this, you know, doubled really over the win streak. So they're putting more on everybody else, asking him to make safe throws, be it screens, out routes, whatever it might be. And then everyone else has kind of gotten better around him. And he just, he just can't do any wrong. I know. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. You already made the young Tom Brady thing, but can you kind of game out for me the, the evolution of Mac Jones and what you think it will look like having seen him play at Alabama, having seen him now with the Patriots, like this offense evolves how as Mac Jones gets better and more comfortable. Yeah. I, you know, I think the offense is what it is at this point, because part of this win streak has been them, I, you know, identifying how they want to play an offense and defense, right. And settling into that and just getting better at it. Whereas, you know, we've talked before about how they treat the first four to six weeks of the season is kind of figuring out what they want to do. I would say next year, though, when he's had a full year in the system, his arm gets a little bit stronger. You know, Matt Ryan was the most common comparison, I think, for the Mac Jones optimist in the draft process. I think that's what it is. It's still going to be a heavy play action passing game. They'll put him in empty as they did against the Titans. He's an effective there. But, you know, this is a guy who I think could be a Pro Bowl quarterback several years moving forward. Um, because right now, like we talked about, they don't even have the best skill position talent around him. It's the offensive right. line and the running game didn't work. How did this team match up with the Bills? Man, this is fun. So there are a lot of weird battlegrounds here, right? Um, but I think you have to start with J.C. Jackson and Stephon Diggs because last year on Monday Night Football, Stephon Diggs rolled him up and smoked him on national television in a big blowout win for the Bills. And I think right now the Patriots have the best defense against number one wideouts by DVOA. So if JC can kind of take digs away, they can devote more resources to the middle of the field where you've got, you know, a guy who started the season in the practice squad, Miles Bryant, up against Cole Beasley, or to help in the run game where the Titans just gash you for 269. So offensively, I think it's going to be a struggle for Mac because, you know, Sean McDermott knows how to defend the Pats passing game. I'd argue better than anyone. Brady's games mm -hmm. against McDermott actually – he had four touchdowns of five picks in six games against Buffalo right at the end of his Patriots tenure. So they're, they're really going to need to run the ball. And the trouble though, with the bills is they are the most unpredictable team in the league and even kind of recent history. So let's just assume they show up. I say, take the under, I think this is going to be a physical game, but it's really going to hinge on an outside matchup with JC and Stefan Diggs. And then offensively, how much can Mac figure out? Um, because if it wasn't for Trayvon or uh, Tredavious White's injury, I mean, they, they might be, you know, held under 10 points, I think, the way they're going into Buffalo. I want you to play armchair psychologist with me um, because Lord knows I like doing it. Um, Bill Belichick lost the best quarterback in history, whatever it was, 18 months ago. And he's kind of getting his, I don't know, swagger back, whatever you want to call it. Um, how does he view this season? Like, does, did, did he come into this season saying, we're just going to take this one year at a time doing the, the boring Belichick thing? And I'm talking about if he got two beers in Bill Belichick, how he, how we would yeah, do yeah. it. Um, did he kind of say, okay, this is a process or did he say, I want to win right now 
because there's a legacy thing or he does not even care about the legacy thing. I mean, you know, Seth Wickersham has talked about this where he says he kind of just wants his kids to be set up and, and there's no real, you know, anti Brady ulterior motive here with his coaching. Like how does Bill Belichick view what's going on right now with his team? I think they always knew that, you know, they wanted to compete and could compete. It was just going to be a narrower path than in years past, right? Where Brady could operate any offense that you wanted aside from a triple option. And then defensively, Bill could adjust his talent to whatever opponent they were facing. This was going to be a limited quarterback, whether it was Cameron Mac Jones, a run game, and then his defense. And I think the defense has exceeded probably even his expectations, especially when you consider Stefan Gilmore's not here anymore. Jonathan Jones has lost for the season. So I think it's not gravy, but things are going as expected because they're playing the way they wanted to play. And now it's just been they're winning as a result of that because they're not turning the ball over it and having any penalties. So he he's, I think, rejuvenated by having Mac here, as is a lot of as are a lot of people in the building, I think, including Josh McDaniels. Um, but, you know, there's a longer term play here where if they don't, you know, make the AFC championship game, I think they're going to be OK because they know they're going to at least be in the running now with how things have gone with Mac and the defense for the next few years. I always like asking B-Riders this question. Um, give me a player we're not talking about enough. And it doesn't matter if it's someone we never talk about who's, a, who's pretty good. doesn't matter if it's someone who we always talk about. We should talk about them as the best player in football. doesn't matter. Hype somebody up. Yeah. Uh, Dante Hightower. I talked yeah. to him a month ago. We broke down four plays uh, over the phone, and I texted him one just so he could get the right detail before I did this piece. And this dude is just blowing up everything in his path. So when you look at the box score, he's headed for probably the worst season of his career, dating back to maybe his second season. But the things they're asking him to do in the run game um, are just outright violent. And he is following through and helping what, you know, is a defense that's still finding itself against the run. But he's not getting the credit because he's not getting the interceptions or the sacks or the pass breakups. But if you just watch him down to down, I think your shoulder is going to be a little sore just watching him from the couch because he's blowing up offensive linemen that are 100 pounds heavier and it's really helping them set up everything else that they want to do. Is Joshua Daniels going to get a head coaching job this offseason? Because to, to me, it, it's a little bit crazy that a Jacksonville wouldn't have called him. It, it's a little crazy to me that there were so many openings. And I understand the Indianapolis part of it and that people were not exactly high on how he performed in those couple weeks before he he bailed, um, as, just as far as you know, reputation-wise. But at some point, his image has been rehabilitated. Like It, it just seems, is he the coach in waiting or, or is he going to go somewhere? Well, it's funny you mentioned Jacksonville because I think they might call him back this offseason, right? With, uh, you know, Notre Dame might be calling Urban up. Um, What's funny to me is that there were two coaches who who had always talked about Notre Dame as like this pie-in-the-sky dream job. One was John Gruden and one was Urban Meyer. Like John Gruden famously used to wake up to the Notre Dame uh, fight song, right, at 3, 3 in the morning, whatever. That was the big anecdote in every profile. And they both of them this year have disgraced themselves to the point that they're they're just out of out of the running. And I would include yeah. Urban Meyer in that. I shouldn't think Urban Meyer is untouchable for a team like Notre Dame. Like there was a really funny tweet I talked about this on Russell a couple weeks ago. I forget I forget what the actual uh, who said it, but the, but someone said after the Urban Meyer uh, bar video, they said I've never seen someone go so quickly from the USC job to the Arizona job. And it's like, that's actually what Urban Meyer is in right now. It's like, that's, that's, that's the, I don't think it's Notre Dame. I don't think it's, it's Oklahoma. It's like, if he goes back to college, he's got to start kind of from the bottom a bit because he might be untouchable just from a, I don't know, morality standpoint. He's going to make touchdown Jesus cross his arms. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. uh, You know, it's tough. I I think Josh McDaniels, I, I know he wants another job. 
And I think he would take one soon. He's just waiting for the right situation because, as you know, you get fired once in the league, you'll get a second chance unless maybe you're Matt Patricia. But, you know, you got to make that second chance count. And a lot of that is due to ownership. So I think if you're Josh McDaniels or anyone else, you look at the Jacksonville ownership and the decision they've made, do you really want to go there? But elsewhere, he's had interviews the last five years running, and that includes the year after the whole Colts debacle. So I think he could absolutely use this season as max development to erase any doubts that people had about, oh, it was Brady the whole time and take that ticket and get out of town and find a new job. Where that job is, though, is going to be really dependent on the ownership and the situation because he's still just in his mid-40s. But I think he's absolutely earned one over the last few years and especially this season. Last thing for you. We're talking about the AFC East on this episode and kind of how it's going to go. The Jets and the Dolphins are the two teams that we're not going to talk about on this. Um, Do you you. feel like... (laughs) No, I'm actually going to ask you a question about it. Do you feel like the Patriots uh, ever see those two teams as getting to to this level? Um, You know, just the future of that division. Is it just going to be Bill's Patriots for like the next five years? Um, I think there's one player who could change Miami's fortune, you know, on the field for the better, off the field, who knows, and could really put Miami up a level, and that's Deshaun Watson. So if he comes to Miami or, or Russell Wilson or Russell Wilson or Aaron yeah. Rodgers or any of these guys that, 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 right. that it has to, the way that those franchises have had a couple of missteps and I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of what Miami's done. It's gotta be one of those guys who, who, who yeah. bridges the gap. Definitely. So I think they could see Miami making the leap because I know the respect Belichick has for Brian Flores and everyone should, he's a good coach. And I think he's building the right culture around there. The problem is like we just talked about the ownership is the big question mark. And I think that's where you have, maybe a lack of faith in New England with Stephen Ross, you know, how much can he allow that culture to build out or make the right decision personnel wise? So, you know, they're playing hard in Miami. I think that quarterback could help them make that leap. They've obviously got to get their offensive line fixed, but the infrastructure from top down in Buffalo, Brandon Bean down to Sean McDermott, that's why they're succeeding. They had the right culture in place before they started to win. Miami's got to get that right. And I don't know how much Deshaun Watson will help that, but obviously on the field, they can make that leap. And in terms of year-to-year consistency, I think it'll be the Pats and Bills for a long time. I agree. I bet the Pats and Bills agree too. And I bet if you got two beers in the Jets, they would agree too. I don't know about the Dolphins. I don't know about the Dolphins. Uh, yeah. Andrew Callahan, beat writer, Boston Herald, New England Patriots. Thanks so much, buddy. Thanks, Ben. This episode is brought to you by Modelo. What does a true fan look like? It's cheering the loudest. It's never missing a game, no matter what. And for that, you deserve an ice cold reward because you are a fighter and Modelo is your reward. Modelo, the mark of a fighter. Shop delivery or pickup options near you at ordermodelo.com. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com.
All right, joined now by Joe Biscali. He's a staff writer at The Athletic. He covers the Buffalo Bills. What's going on, buddy? Not too much, Kevin. I'm honestly just honored to be speaking to the guy that brought back the old school Orlando Magic song. Um, so this is this is a huge honor for me for my professional career right now. Are there any old school Bill songs we need to bring back? Uh, they, they've been using the same one. It's the shout song. They've been using <laughs> it for years and years and years, and it's never going away anytime soon. I didn't know. I was actually watching a video of Pete Carroll this morning for something else. And he was talking about how win forever, the term win forever that he uses all the time, came from being in the Bill Stadium and seeing them make four straight Super Bowls. And he, this was, I guess, in the 90s, he saw it. And he was like, he said to himself, wow, they win forever. And then he decided <laughs> that he was going to adopt this. So the Bills, just they launched the USC dynasty. They launched the, the Seahawks. So there you go. If they can't win a Super Bowl on their own, they at least encouraged Pete Carroll to win his own. Yes, yeah, they they can take that and put a put a random little uh, a little banner. mark, a banner if they can hang it from anywhere in that windy. There's stadium. a little plaque yeah. that says "Inspired Pete Carroll to Win Forever." <laughs> Inspired Pete Carroll in USC. I yes. was looking; it was a video from like seven years ago, and it, it, I was trying to find a quote about USC because I was doing a, a Lincoln Riley thing, and uh, instead I found just a random Bills tidbit. Um, so we have you on because we're trying to figure out what's going on in the AFC East and kind of how the AFC East explains football. Um, there's one consistent team. Uh, there's one team that seems to be on the rise. And then there's two teams that I don't know are a little bit lost. Um, and I want to start here. Um, the inconsistency over the past couple of weeks has been worrying and confusing to everybody. I think, I think that if you go down and lose in Jacksonville, that in and of itself is some inconsistency. And then you add in, um, getting the break speed off them by the Titans. And I get into a zone where I don't really know what's going on with the Buffalo Bills. Help me understand. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a long conversation for sure, because I think what they've kind of met is like this little area of where they are now the hunted team, and they've been used to being this plucky underdog, and you know, no one believing in them, all, all of that good stuff. Like every, every silly, corny, sports, sportsy thing you could think of uh, applies to the Buffalo Bills because they legitimately relish being disrespected and everything like that. But when they're they're not the the bottom guys, then they they uh, they haven't really found that consistency. Like their biggest win to date has been when they've blown out the Kansas City Chiefs. And right. it was a week where they were the underdog. Um, so every other time where they were kind of the hunted or weren't playing against a backup quarterback or anything like that, they they haven't really done much of anything. And they've they've been beaten, quite honestly. So it, it, that's a big part of it. And then you look at some of the inconsistency with the offense, whether it be, you know, trying to figure out what the heck their run game is and basically switching up some run blocking um, principles in season, uh, trying to figure out different little elements of who should be on the field, whether it be Singletary, Zach Moss, uh, Matt Breida most recently. Um, and then they're, then they're, uh, they've had to try and, really undercut a couple of different defensive philosophies used against them. Like cover two shell was used against them against Jacksonville. And that really threw them for a loop because they had some backup offensive linemen in there. Um, they, uh, they have had to overcome cover zero throughout the season. So all these little different things have added up to it. And the fact that Josh Allen hasn't been quite as sharp as he was last year, I think it, it, it leads to the inconsistency that we, we see today. 
Uh, I want to talk about the Josh Allen thing, but specifically um, when you mentioned uh, the cover zero, the cover two shell, all that stuff, mm-hmm. what do we know? Josh Allen's in his fourth year. He's changed dramatically year to year, so it's hard to say, okay, this is what works against Josh Allen. But painting with broad strokes, what works against Josh Allen? Well, I think if you are a defense that um, does well with containing the edge and keeping him pinned in, I think that is going to be something that takes away his fastball, which is, you know, just like a lot the same with Patrick Mahomes, where if he gets outside the pocket and he's able to freelance a little bit, he has a howitzer for an arm where he can fit it into a really stupidly small spot. Um, And so that, I think, has had some success. I think the Colts did that, and that certainly helped them uh, help them really keep the Bills offense on their heels and you know not really be able to establish much of anything or finish drives Um, so I think for him he can beat that and this is why the Bills have invested so heavily in the guy because Mm -hmm. you will see one thing that just crushes his soul one week and then the next week it's like snap of fingers it's fixed no problem Um, I mean cover zero gave him a, a heck of a problem for the longest time in his second year and then all of a sudden he fixed it in his third year. And then it was, oh, hey, play heavy zone against this guy. And then he crushed that. And it's, oh, heavy man against this guy. Crush that. So it's just he's unlike any quarterback that I've covered in Buffalo. And that's really not saying much because I've covered the likes of Trent Edwards. <laughs> and uh, let's see who else. Um, Thad Lewis. Uh, you know, there's, there's Nathan a lot Peterman. of examples. Nathan Peterman. Nathan Peterman. Oh, the, the Peterman explosion in L.A. I will never forget that in my life. Anyway. No, no, we need to take a detour here. Give me, give me something I've never heard about Nathan Peterman and that, and that, um, experience because I, I've never seen anything like it. And what was amazing to me was, and this has never happened before NFL players really disliked the idea of Nathan Peterman playing in a football game. Like, I, I don't know what, what about it offended them. But, like, I remember I tweeted something about Nathan Peterman. I'm getting likes from, like, all these random Seahawks players and stuff. And I'm just like, what What happened? Why Why are so many people mad at Nathan Peterman? What was it like to have a, a front row seat to that? Uh, it was it was amazing because it was still in the old school uh, before the Chargers had SoFi. So yeah, 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 yeah. It was in that soccer stadium. And just watching his brain basically just – it's like that little emoji where the the, yeah. the wind comes out from the top. He, I think the, the thing that I'll remember is that the first interception wasn't really his fault. Um, Patrick DeMarco uh, basically flubbed a, a catch and it went right into a defender's ham, hands. But from there, goodness me, it was every single throw seemed like it was about to get picked off. And Kelvin Benjamin was a starting receiver in that game. Like, it, he just... He did not have – it didn't really have the backing of the team, I don't think, because yeah. Tyrod was still the guy there, and they just got their doors blown off by New Orleans the week before, so McDermott made a switch. Didn't work out. Um, yeah, so I, I think I think that that is going to be deserving of, of a deep dive before too long. I completely agree with you. I mean, it was just stunning. And again, like, it's not Nathan Peterman's fault. And, and again, it shows you – and this is something I've talked about a million times, but it shows you – the difference like Nathan Peterman's in the sweet spot where he's good enough to be in the NFL, but he's also bad enough to be the worst player I've ever seen play football. Right. Yeah. And like, this mm-hmm. is a guy who put Clemson in hell when, when they played in college. Right. I mean like this, is it is Nathan Peterman's existence to me is, is fascinating. But anyway, we'll, we'll get off that and get back into Josh Allen. So yeah. you talked about how he wasn't, he isn't his 2020 form. He already has as many interceptions as he had last year, but he's still pretty good. Um, is this kind of what you expected? I mean, for me, I had, I had a tough time 
wrapping my head around the concept of Josh Allen regression because I don't know what that looks like because he was wildly inconsistent. He was the whole Josh Allen experience in 2018 and 2019. And then in 2020, he was almost perfect. And I just splitting the difference in those two things to me, that broke my brain, right? I'm, 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 I'm in the Peterman thing here. I'm just, I don't know what I'm looking at. <laughs> and, and, and that to me is, is why I found it so fascinating. And a lot of that has to do, frankly, you know, when you talk to Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott, something you've done far more than me, a lot of it has to do with how they built around him, the team. I mean, I think that a lot of Josh Allen's early struggles um, were a mixture of his own inconsistency, but also the talent around him and the line. And Brandon Bean told me a couple months ago um, that, that, they're, they think they're lucky stars. Allen even survived 2018 because of, of, of the line before they went out and started to improve it. So um, Josh Allen's performance in 2021 is what? It is, I think the term regression is, is uh, it, it's honestly something that we should all consider. Um, when you look at how he has developed into this season, it hasn't been nearly as good as it was last year, but that's hard to replicate last year. And and I think the term regression often has a negative connotation, but like Josh Allen's season last year was so ridiculous on so many different levels. You saw his intermediate accuracy go up like 20% <laughs> last year. Uh, you saw his deep ball accuracy go up. And sure, some of that has to do with a better line and better receivers and, and Stefan Diggs as well. But I mean, to see him go from point A to point B from 19 to 20 was ridiculous. And that's why I, I even wrote beginning of the season. Like, it's it's fair to expect some sort of regression, and it doesn't have to be a negative thing because it's just so hard to go year to year um, with all of the injury luck that they had last year at receiver, quarterback, and uh, with their offensive line, and certainly how teams – they kind of caught him off guard last year. And now this year they're, you know, game planning weeks in advance, months in advance for Josh Allen to figure out what to do to stop this guy. So I think the term regression is acceptable in, in this, uh, in this case, but I think there is opportunity for them to be better than what they have been. And they've still been a pretty good offense this year. It's just, they, they can, they can crush opponents if they start hitting on all cylinders. And that's what they're kind of banking on here moving forward. It's interesting to me because when I talked to Bean in July and August, he said the reason that they drafted two pass rushers with the first two picks was because they didn't get enough pass rush against Kansas City. And I kind of felt, and I'm sure you felt the same way, that the Kansas City loss to them was pretty much all they were thinking about as far as team building this offseason. Now all of a sudden they have to worry about the New England Patriots who they play on Monday night. Um, you think they're surprised by the timetable and how quickly the Patriots got there to become their main threat? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, it's it's hard not to be. I mean, the, the Patriots went out, they spent a bunch of money, um, but I don't think they expected the offense to be as efficient as it has been with a rookie quarterback. And I'm sure some of it has to do with the Patriots' schedule and what they've gone up against recently. Um, and, and now, you know, McDermott has a pretty sterling record against rookie quarterbacks, so we'll see how they try to defend um, Mac Jones in this upcoming Monday night game. But I think it, it has caught them by surprise to where they have to kind of fight for their life in the AFC East. But I, to a certain degree though, I think it also, they might be somewhat happy about it. And I say that with a question mark at the end, just because of what I touched on right at the beginning, this is a roster that thrives on being an underdog. And I hate it. I hate it because it's so corny, but it is so 
freaking true out of this locker room. And anytime that they have it, they just they they just come out with a strong answer. You know, people started to think poorly about them heading into that New Orleans game. You know, New Orleans didn't really have much of anything on offense, but you know, they they came in, they they dominated offensively, defensively, and and they just had a, a full scale victory. So I think for them, they they don't want to be in this position, but they like it because that they'll it'll help them keep their edge. And uh, I think that's the, that's the silver lining to this whole thing because if if they can win the AFC East and get to the dance with uh with a at least one home playoff game. They feel like I would have to think they feel like this AFC is so completely up in the air that anybody could come away with it, including them. So the team building part of this is interesting to me because I think that they viewed this as kind of a three to four year build. And I think that even Josh Allen said this to me that, okay, get the line down, get the weapons down. It's go time. Mm -hmm. Going forward. Now they had the pass rush to Greg Rousseau looks good. I really like Greg Rousseau. He opted out at Miami, but I, I really like him. He could play anywhere. Um, going forward, this team needs to focus on what from a team building standpoint? I think they need to focus on getting younger at receiver and continuing their fastball because right now they've got Emmanuel Sanders who's given them about 80, 85% of snaps. Uh, they like Gabriel Davis, who's probably going to end up being a, a starting uh, X or Z receiver for them, whichever one they decide on uh, next year. Uh, but at slot receiver, which is a humongous spot on their offense Cole Beasley is going to be 33 next year and they can easily get out of his contract if they want to he also has looked a step slower this year if we're being honest um so and the same thing kind of happened with John Brown last year and they moved on from John Brown so we'll see if if they and then you have all the other stuff with Cole I was waiting for that I was waiting what other stuff yeah what's going on with Cole Beasley you know the on Twitter off Twitter sure sure uh, COVID conspiracy. Cole Beasley's yeah. been in the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, thankfully he got off Twitter. So that way I, we didn't have to think about that anymore. But you never know. He could be back on. Um, yeah, I think that that has to be a part of the discussion. And I think just growing and, and moving towards the future with that offense. Because, you know, their defense, you know it as well as I do. Defense is so hard to predict from one year to the next. And yes. the only predictable asset is your offense and continuing that along with your $252 million quarterback and Josh Allen, you need to prevent provide him with all the options. I know some people will, will think, Oh, get a guard, get a, get a center for the future. I mean, they they're good at center for now. They can get by at guard. They've shown that before. Go get yourself some wide receivers. And Hey, I mean, if, if you want to look at the defensive side, cornerback right now looks like something that they're going to need to address because they are razor thin, even with Tredavious White, and now without him, it, it could be a problem moving forward. I asked Andrew Callahan this question because I like asking it when guys really know teams. Give us a guy we're not talking about enough in either direction. Like, if there's a guy who's really kind of struggling this year that we're not talking about enough, or there's a guy who's just out, playing out of his mind right now that's getting no recognition, who are we hyping up right now? I think um, it's it's been kind of interesting, but Spencer Brown, the third-round pick uh, out of Northern Iowa, he to me, is someone that I did not expect to be a part of the starting picture. And he is now effectively indispensable to their offensive line. They've had Ooh. they've been without him the last three or four weeks. He has come in, become the starting right tackle. He's looked great, super athletic. Um, he's He plays with an edge, which they love. Uh, he mocked Desmond King for being short which is a video that went viral a few weeks ago. Yep. Um, he, uh, he 
has allowed them to get better in two different spots at right tackle because Darrell Williams, who they signed and thought they were going to be the starting right tackle for this year and maybe even next year, he stunk up the joint at right tackle this year, just hasn't moved well. They moved him inside to right guard. It's turned his season around. Spencer Brown has been awesome at right tackle, and then it's allowed the left guard spot, John Feliciano, to get settled in when he's healthy. So I think he's probably the guy. I think there's there's other guys like Ed Oliver, I think, is coming into his own this year, but I think he's always been good. Gabriel Davis is someone who I think needs more time, but he's, he's, uh, he's not getting it right now. So I think Spencer Brown's the, the answer to this one. Interesting. All right. Handicap the AFC for me. Um, it's a, it's the last thing here. Um, again, we talked about the chiefs as the, the target on everybody's back. Um, the Ravens are currently the one seed. The Patriots are on a timetable that is much, is, is so much more accelerated than we thought. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just a lot here right now. Um, where do you think the bills stack up within that, that hierarchy? I think they and the Chiefs are the top two teams right now. Uh, I think the Chiefs are probably better than the Bills at this moment. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the Patriots, like you, it, it seems accelerated, but I still want to see them beat a team that who's, who was without their starting running back and both their starting mm-hmm. receivers like Tennessee was last week. Their defense is legit, no doubt, and I can't wait to watch film on the Patriots this week to see what their offense is all about, but I want to see if if that Patriots offense can go step for step with the Bills offense, and if they can't, then we're going to see them kind of drip back in that wild card spot. So I think the Chiefs, to me, it looks like they've turned things around defensively. Um, Their offensive line has been playing much better. It is not the same Chiefs team than what played the Bills. So again, the... uh, the twisted sister of the Bills and how they shaped their entire offseason, like you pointed out, and it was very right to do so. Um, the Bills are going, probably going to need someone else to beat Kansas City or to do it themselves to get to the Super Bowl this year. I was going to say when you mentioned the Patriots that we'll find out on Monday night, but what's going to happen is we'll find something out on Monday night, and then there'll be three more weeks where everything yeah. we saw on Monday night gets reversed. That's yeah, just then the Bills will lose works. to Carolina, yeah, and then exactly. the whole thing will get flipped on its head. Exactly, exactly. So we'll see something on Monday night. I just don't know what it's going to be. Uh, Joe Biscali, read him at The Athletic. He covers the Buffalo Bills. He does a great job. Thanks for stopping by, buddy. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate you. Okay, this has been the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. Next up on this feed is Nora and Mallory, one of my favorite shows of the week. And then on Friday, Ben Solak, Stephen Ruiz, and Kalen Jones will preview all of the weekend's action. Thank you to Chris Sutton for his production help with additional production supervision by Arjuna Ramkapal.